Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Go buy a couple copies, please. Thank you. We love you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. All right, and on today's episode here on episode 130, we're going to get through a couple of announcements. We're going to go talk about some beer news, uh, drop some videos that you guys can watch before we head into the lounge to go talk about a new way to think about your IBUs, which is kind of important with all the hop stuff that's going on. So there's going to be a lot of talk about this uh, coming up, so uh, prepare, strap in. It's going to get weird. Yep, and it's going to get intense. Let me tell you, man, This if this doesn't make your head spin, then I don't know what will. Well, I guess about 18 beers would. But anyway, before we do any of that stuff, please take a listen to these messages from the people who make this show possible. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, publishers of Zymergy Magazine, organizers of HomebrewCon, and enjoyers of homebrew. Join your friends in fermentation at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Before we kick it into high gear, we've got a few announcements to make. And Drew's got the first one about the new episode of The Brew Files. Yeah, and so if you haven't paid attention to your podcast feed or you're one of those weird people who goes to the website to listen to an episode, we did drop a new episode last week of The Brew Files, episode 99, which is mildly terrifying. And it is all about me talking with Noah Niebaron from Tilt about the Tilt Hydrometers. And what you can do with them, why you should have one in your brewery, and how exactly do you go sell a grumpy old man like Denny on a tilt hydrometer? You don't. That that was pretty much the answer. So go give it a listen and tell me about your experiences with tilt. I want to let you know that uh, the American Homebrewers Association HomebrewCon is going virtual again this year. Hopefully we can all be together next year in Pittsburgh. But for this year, it's June 17th through 19th, and uh, it's going to be all online, tons of seminars, interesting stuff to see, and, you know, I, I guess it's going to be hard to share a beer with people, except if, unless you do it virtually. But if you go to uh, homebrewcon.org, you can see the information for it, and you can register to be there. It's uh, going to be real fun. I've really enjoyed the one last year, so uh, hope you guys will make this one. Yeah, at least the commute is very short and the plane tickets are cheap. <laughs> yeah, right. And you don't have to wear pants. <clears throat> Please wear pants. <laughs> and speaking of... How will, the, you, how will you know? 
It's a good question. Just don't put that image in my mind. Thank you. Okay. I won't tell you if I'm wearing pants or not. I appreciate it. We'll just operate on good faith. And then also with the the Association of Homebrewers, you know, at the same time that they do the HomebrewCon, of course, they obviously put out a lot of awards. And I have one that's very near and dear to my heart. That is the Radagast Award, which is also informally called the Awesome Club of Awesomeness Award. And it is a award that's given every year to clubs that are doing really cool, really amazing things as homebrewers and showing exactly the potential of homebrewing as not just a way to make beer, but also a way to improve our communities. So if you go online to homebrewersassociation.org and you go into the homebrew clubs area, you'll find a link to to submit a entry to the Radagast Club of the Year. And the clubs that win that get $1,000, $500 for the club and $500 for their favorite charity. So go and apply. The deadline is April 11th. So get your entries in, please. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA Amazon Brewers Friends or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more or even more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's World Central Kitchen, an organization started by Chef Jose Andres to feed people in need. And the really cool part about this is that it works with restaurants in the area where the need is. Uh, for instance, if you have a, a disaster in your area, I'm not saying that you will, but if you did, uh, and people needed to be fed, then World Central Kitchen would uh, work with the restaurants and food service people in your area to uh, get people fed. So you give the money nationally, but it ends up getting paid back locally. We think that this is such a great and important organization that instead of the six months we normally run these, we're running this for an entire year through the end of June. And not only that, but we are going to match whatever you guys contribute. So please give a bunch of money, make us give a bunch of money, and we'll help feed hungry people in times of need. Food is good. Feeding people who need food is even better. That's right. And now it's time for your feedback. feedback. It's a short feedback this week because, well, we got a lot of responses from people talking about their tilts and their eye spindles. And yes, I'm talking about you, Peter. Um, and so it was a, so much information that I'm not exactly sure that we could you know, talk about it here in the show without making it the whole damn show. So instead, I just wanted to say almost universally from the, the feedback that I got from the people who at least were happy to email us or willing to take a moment to go, hey, you guys are doing this. Um, it was 100% positive. Uh, obviously, the people out there who've gotten themselves involved in the world of tilts and spindles and gidgets and gadgets, y'all love these things. So one of the things that I'm curious about is for anybody who's actually gotten their hands on a tilt or a spindle or something like that and used it, have any of you just ended up getting kind of eh about it? Because I haven't seen that reaction yet, and I'm curious. Well, there's that. You either love it or you don't think you need it. And I guess. Well, I was going to say that was that. That's been your your response level that you've seen, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I just can't see that that information is going to make any difference in making my life better. So, but you know, I'm me. Other people have different opinions, like you, and you know, you're wrong all the time. So you might as well be wrong this time too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Yeah, right. That was a long pause. <laughs> All right. Okay. Just for just just for that, you owe me a beer. All right. Let's go to the pub. I'll buy you a beer once we get there. Stick around. We're going to head over to the Experimental Brewing Pub, and uh, we'll be back in just a couple minutes. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to those messages from our sponsors. We are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere, somewhere out in cyberspace. And we're having a couple beers today. Drew is drinking IPA. Hey, so I'm not the one drinking IPA today, huh? I know, it's a role reversal. Um, But in particular, I'm drinking a new IPA, and it's from the folks at Radiant Beer. And you guys will remember a couple episodes back, I mean, I think... Whether it was like January now, uh, January we had them on the air talking about you know what it takes to actually reopen a place that's been closed. You know what are the challenges? You know how do you deal with? Hey, we're not the same people and our beer's different. And I finally got my hands on some beer. I had them on the Falcons Happy Hour, and Andrew Bell came on and talked about his beers with us. And what I thought was really interesting was one of the beers in the pack which I'm really enjoying, is a beer called Worth Exploring IPA. And it's a 7.3% ABV IPA, so, you know, kind of fairly normal. In talking with Andrew, what I thought was really interesting was he made a very strong distinction between the idea of hazy IPA, West Coast IPA, and nothing surprising about that, but then also having a very clear distinction between those two and just IPA. And in his mind, the the difference was West Coast IPA is all about that bitterness. Hazy IPA is all about the hazy and aroma type stuff. His notion for an IPA was basically, can I get that same sort of big mouthfeel, big aroma minus some of the, the aggressive bitterness from West Coast IPA? And that's what he's funneling into his interpretation of just IPA. 
Um, and so it's actually, I mean, it was a, a, it's a really drinkable beer, even with a, a large amount of tropical fruit flavors to it, right? Because, again, pulling some of those notes from Hazy's. But it's got uh, Nelson, Citra, Simcoe, Mosaic, and Amarillo in there. So even the, the hop blend itself is also kind of a mix between the two. Um, but really, really surprisingly drinkable, very hop-rich, but also not over-the-top bitter. And part of the reason why I was fascinated by it was just that way that he was deciding that he was going to split out his differences between those three, air quotes, style of IPA. So there you go. I don't know what you think about that. I, I mean, to me, it was the first time I think I've ever really heard somebody talking about, like, I don't want the IPA to be that bitter. The West Coast IPA should be that bitter. Yeah, and my feeling is exactly the opposite of that. So I would have to try this beer to see if it was something that I could get into or not. And now for you, you're going even paler. Yeah, I'm I'm going exactly the other way. I am having a Pilsner by Breakside Brewing up in Portland. Uh, remember, we like had a chance to go there and check the place out mm-hmm. when we were up in Portland a few years ago. This is a and play with the dog. <laughs> yeah, of course. I knew you'd remember the dog. This is a delicious Pilsner. We had a, a pretty hot day yesterday and uh, decided we'd break it out. And uh, it's really, really nice. Five uh, percent and twenty-eight IBUs. Although, boy, it sure tastes like more than twenty-eight IBUs. It has a, a nice, firm bitterness to it, but a, a really good malt background. Uh, they're using Hallertau, uh, Hallertau uh, middle fruit and Liberty, and they also uh, say that they put some carapils into this, which, uh, you know, I have not done that because I didn't think a Pilsner should have carapils in it, but after drinking this one, I think maybe I'm going to be changing my mind and giving that a try on on my next uh, German-style Pilsner. Uh, Very clean beer, nice, refreshing bitterness to it. Highly recommended if you run across it. There you go. And for people who haven't been paying attention i would yeah if you were kind of turned off by the whole earlier craft beer movement of making hoppy pilsners or ipls or whatever they want to call them i've recently because i just wrote a column about it dug back into that category for the first time in years because i really didn't like a lot of what people were doing in terms of hop forward pilsners or hop forward lagers and i have to say the market has definitely changed and there are some outstanding ones out there now yeah i mean and i would say that the hops in this are definitely very present but it's, you're not going to confuse it for like an IPL or something like that. It is definitely a German-style pills with a nice, firm, yet not over-the-top bitterness to it. There you go. All right, and now it's time for the news. And as we're recording this, it is officially the day after April Fool's Day, and we have all survived. You know, everybody. I think everybody's gotten wary enough now. There were a couple of uh, stories that we saw that were right on the edge of reality. And to the point where I'm not sure what the hell is happening. But I figured we'd summarize some of the the good, the bad, and the ugly in the middle of it. The good, to me, is actually something we're going to talk about uh, on a later episode of the show. Uh, a group launched called the Brewers Space Guild. And it's actually a front for, you know, and they're supposed to be bringing uh, craft beer to outer space, right? Uh, space Force for beer. And But it's actually a front for a group of state guild directors, you know, or city directors in, in my case, uh, who are all sort of banding together to bring resources to bear for the various state guilds that are out there, which have proven very critical to helping breweries survive COVID. 
And so this is now a new organization that's being launched. Uh, Rob Fulmer from Arizona is sort of the one of the chief architects of it. And so we'll be talking to him later about it. But I thought that was like one of the things I saw that was actually a good thing to be announced during April Fool's Day. Because a lot of times you just kind of have to go, oh, man. Um, <laughs> and th- there was the uh, usual amount of silly stuff, too. Uh, you know, uh, fake beer releases. Uh, Alesong has announced that uh, rather than sticking to the bandwagon of the pastry stout, they were going to make an entree stout that they were uh, calling Ballpark. Uh, the, the picture showed... Uh, wasn't it ballpark suit? Yeah, ballpark suit because uh, they have uh, a base uh, imperial milk stout they call rhino suit, and then they do variations on that. the The picture showed a glass of uh, of the beer with a hot dog and buns stuffed into it, and a bottle festooned with uh, ribbons of ketchup and mustard. And uh, which, which by the way, is the actually the biggest sin. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna. I'm, I was, I'm, 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 I'm not pedantic about a lot of things, but. Ketchup and hot dogs? I'm judging you. <laughs> I was going to say, a lot of people said, you know, I drink the beer, but not ketchup on hot dogs. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, <laughs> there, there were other things. Uh, I can't remember the name of the brewery, but they put out uh, an announcement about their new double decocted hard seltzer, which... Uh, that was Wayfinder. Uh, oh, was it Wayfinder? Yeah, okay, great. I, it was. Uh, I really enjoyed that one quite a bit. Yeah, talking about instead of using sugar, we're going to use malt in order to get our sugar, and really to be able to maximize our extraction, we're going to go for uh, we're going to go for double decoction. And instead of trying to use uh, fruit flavors that are derived from extracts, we're going to derive our fruit flavors from hops. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Who knew? And uh, uh, still speaking of uh, seltzer, there was somebody out there, and I forget who who announced that they were they were setting up an organization to help you know further the cause of seltzers and understanding seltzers and understanding how to judge them and the flavors possible with them and it was going to be the seltzerone society so that one that one made me laugh a little. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I agree man that's that's really great and then finally if we had the good we've had the bad or the silly then we've also had the ugly because this one was telling to me about i think what's where where we are as a industry and as a hobby uh matt humbard who we've of course had on the show before talking about hop terpenes and who is uh sort of the unofficial vaccination cheerleader to the brewing industry so uh you know i think he's exhausted from battling covid and working on covid related causes for the feds for the past year um he posted a a photoshopped cover of a fake book uh, from brewers publications called American Candy Ale, uh, all about how to make a candied, uh, a candied ale, a pastry stout, all these things involving Snickers and gummy bears and all that sort of fun stuff. And his chapter titles and quotes are were really funny and on point. And, of course, the problem is I could actually see somebody writing a book about that. Well, you know, it's inevitable, isn't it? Quite possibly. Coming soon, Pastry Stout's the book. <laughs> but it, it, but it, but it was funny and kind of kind of cute, and I think that was the one I saw that had the most traction, because uh, I think there were a lot of people out there who who just laughed at it. Yeah, oh, definitely. So, so congratulations to Matt. Oh wait, what, who was it that? Uh, oh, Almanac had the uh, the clam chowder beer. Oh yeah, somebody somebody that's right had a clam chowder beer. I saw that and yeah, went, we started we started getting tagged in it. Yep, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Can we sue them? Uh, no, I think that's an idea that that should you know be allowed to stand on its own. Yeah, right. 
Okay, now something a little bit more serious and closer to your heart, huh? Now, if you guys you guys know me, I love Allagash Brewing Company uh, up in Maine. I love all the beer work that they do. And if you're listening to this podcast, you definitely know that I love Saison. Please tell me you know that. I know that. Otherwise, yeah. Um, so Allagash has been putting together what they call Saison Day. And it's on April 14th, so it's coming up here. And you can register online at Allagash.com slash Saison Day. And... What they're doing this year is basically what everybody's been doing, which is everybody gets up on a Zoom call. Let's let's go, uh, you know, talk about Cezanne. Except for what's cool here is that they're actually going to have brewers from all around the country talking about Cezannes that they that they've been making. So uh, Avery Swanson of Keeping Together, uh, Christopher Johnson of Greenbench, Matt Levy of Threes Brewing, and and others are all joining. And what they're doing is. They're not doing what a lot of people have been doing, which is like, here, here's a mixed pack. Buy it from us. We'll ship it to you. Instead, what they're doing is they're giving you the beers that people are going to talk about and say, here, if you're, if these are available in your area, go get them, right? And we'll go online and we'll get to go ahead and taste them together and talk about Saison. So it's really sort of great. Uh, it, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Again, it's a free event on April 14th, allagash.com slash Saison Day, and you can get to come enjoy some... Saisons uh, virtually. So uh, next, we're going to talk about uh, a brewery that went to a winery and then turned back to a brewery, kind of again, huh? Uh, Pat- <laughs> at least, at least, at least became a brewery. Again, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Patrick Rue, who started the brewery a, a few years back, uh, it became a huge, huge success, uh, making sour beers uh, in unusual combinations. And then he decided that... Strong beers. Yeah, right. Uh, He kind of decided he'd had enough and uh, moved up to Napa and bought, opened a winery. Uh, Yeah, he opened up a erosion winery in Napa, California, and they're focused on uh, natural wines. And he's been doing that for the past year or so. Uh, I mean, it opened... Literally, Erosion's tasting room opened in St. Helena in February of 2020. Which, if you want to talk about timing, yikes. Um, and but he's he's been working, keeping the business moving, and actually uh, expanding it. So when he left the brewery, you know, he sold he sold the brewery to a group of uh, private equity investors, and he went up to Napa. And so I guess after a year of running the winery, he now also wants to run a brewery as well. And so. It, Literally next door, uh, he's asking for approval to take over uh, an old shop there and open up Erosion Brewing. Right, so Erosion Winery, Erosion Brewing. And he's only planning on doing 56 batches per year, and they're going to be small batches. They're going to be, at, uh, what, 108.5 gallons to the batch. Right? And what is that? That's like three barrels? Yeah, something like that. A little over, a little over, a little over three barrels per batch. And... As opposed to the stuff that he did at the brewery and the stuff that the brewery uh, staff did, they are, uh, he's going to focus on, uh, you know, sort of more beer like beers, you know, like softer beers. So, yeah, he says that he's not going to do the big barrel aged 15 to 20% uh, alcohol type beers, instead, focusing on kind of more uh, beer oriented type beers. So, it'd be very curious to see what Patrick's going to do, and good luck to him for. 
not only open up a winery uh, tasting room in the start of a pandemic, but also keeping it going well enough to be able to open up a brewery next door. Yeah, really, man. The guy definitely has some magic. Yeah, well, and, and when he when he posted the news story about it happening, uh, and I was like, oh, just couldn't stay away, could you? <laughs> I know, man. It, it, it's a sickness, uh, an addiction. There you go. And from Erosion Winery, we move on to uh, Pink Boots. So uh, the Pink Boots uh, organization or Pink Boots Society, if you all don't know or you don't remember, I mean, it's been an organization that has been around for, what, about 15 years now? And their focus has been about mentoring women in the brewing industry, coming together as women in the brewing industry, you know, really sort of saying, hey, we're here, we make beer. Um, and I thought this was interesting because, of course, with the past year and a lot of the stuff that's been uh, happening with things like Black Lives Matter, uh, Weathered Souls, uh, Black is Beautiful initiative, uh, a, lot, a lot of stuff talking about trans rights and uh, uh, queer rights and just the sort of the breadth of that community, the Pink Boot Society is actually looking to sort of better support people in those umbrellas under their umbrella as well. So the, this particular push that they're making, uh, Jen Jordan, who's the president of the uh, Pink Boot Society, uh, and she works at uh, Laughing Monk in San Francisco, if I remember correctly. Uh, she's basically talking about, you know, hey, you know, we're really trying to expand what our mission is to be better and more inclusive for, you know, uh, women of color, uh, folks who are queer or bisexual or, or people who are, you know, uh, trans and trying to make it into a more supportive, explicitly supportive, I should say, not passively supportive, actively supportive uh, organization for them. So I thought that was rather cool to to see that not only is Pink Boots thriving, but they're also trying to find a way forward to actually expand their membership and expand what they're what they're offering to the membership. It, yeah, it's really a wonderful organization, and we need to give a shout out to Terry Ferendorf who started it. She's uh, Done a lot of amazing things in the brewing industry since she got started quite a while ago. And uh, the the woman just keeps going and going and going. And uh, a great legacy having this organization that she's started. Well, and I think she did one of the most important things that a lot of founders of organizations don't do, which is she established it. She got it up and running. She made it you know rock solid. And then she stepped away from it. Yep, yep. And let others take it over to keep it going. I think that's a great idea because it gives you a diversity of ideas, not to mention it keeps her from going crazy trying to deal with it. Well, and also I've, I've preached this before to homebrew clubs because you'll see it a lot of times in homebrew clubs and other volunteer organizations. It's not just beer-related stuff, but all volunteer organizations where if you don't have refreshing of leadership, if you aren't pulling people up into the leadership pool, and giving them that experience, and instead you just have like the same folks running it year over year over year, eventually a lot of those organizations will die off because either people aren't as invested in the organization or you lose interest in running the organization and nobody's been trained how to do it. And nobody ha- nobody feels empowered to do it. So, it, yeah, I, I thought that was a great move on her part. And I love to see where the Pink Boots Society is going. And, of course, you can always watch with the Yakima Chief doing their um, Pink Boots blend you can see Pink Boots beers pop up again and again across, you know, America all throughout the year. So go support the Pink Boots Society. Yeah, exactly. 
We also want to let you know about some online beer courses that you can take. Uh, Marty Notchell, who has written four books on brewing, including the seminal works uh, Beer for Dummies and Home Brewing for Dummies, has a bunch of online courses that are available on his website. Uh, and we'll post a link to that so you don't have to try and remember it right now. But he has courses like How to Be a Beer Geek, How to Judge Beer Like a Pro, Beer and Food Pairing, Made Easy, Barrel-Aged Beer, uh, Wild Sour and Acidic Beers, and a lot more. And Marty has a wealth of knowledge and information to share. Uh, he's been around a while, and uh, if you have interest in any of these topics, you probably couldn't find a better teacher for any of them. Yeah, yeah, Marty's Marty's a really good voice on that sort of stuff. So, it takes a real strong educational approach as opposed to sort of shotgunning you with a ton of knowledge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, so, so anyway, please go to his website, check it out, uh, see if there's something there that's interesting to you, and uh, if so, sign up. And so, our final story for the day is coming to us from Seattle, where two local breweries, uh, Rubens Brewers and uh, Metier Brewing Company, I'm fairly certain I've said that wrong. Um, have come together to form a foundation that they're calling the Mosaic States Brewers Collective. And what the Mosaic States Brewers Collective is trying to do is, much like how the Pink Boot Society story that we're talking about was sort of trying to become a more inclusive umbrella for, uh, for their group, what Mosaic is trying to do is help mentor more uh, brewery owners and brewers who are people of color and so they were talking about here that, um, that even though there's a lot of love for craft beer, again, ownership is still pretty uh, pretty heavily white. And so the, they're, they're quoting from the 2019 Brewers Association report that says uh, 88% of the people who own a craft brewery are white, and only 4% of those are, or and then only 4% of the owners are American Indian or Alaskan, uh, 2% Asian, 2% Hispanic, and just 1% black. And so they're coming together with uh, Dr. J. Jackson Beckham, who has been working with the Brewers Association on their diversity committee, um, and with her group, uh, Crafted for All, which is also involved with the Pink Boots effort. And they're bringing together a program for 10 participants to basically sort of establish, hey, you know, here's, here's what we think that you can do in the industry, and how do you, how do you become a leader in the industry to help others as well? And they're doing it via, you know, mentoring and exercises and all that sort of fun stuff. And part of the reason to talk about it is that our good, good buddy, Annie Johnson is one of the mentors. So again, this is interesting to see how the craft beer community is responding to some of these, uh, some of these gaps and making some of these, these efforts to actually make good positive changes that will help the whole community. Uh, so keep an eye out for that, the Mosaic State Brewers Collective. So go uh, go read about it, go help support, and go drink some beer. Sounds like a very, very cool program. Uh, I'm, I'm glad they did it. I hope people take advantage of it and appreciate it. There you go. But now it's time to head over to the lounge and where we're going to get technical, talking about... Uh, MIBUs, a new way of calculating the bitterness in your beer. So stick around. We'll meet you over there in just a minute. 
Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH mobile solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. From the Malt Innovation Center, Great Western Malting has released two new products. The first is Biscuit Rye, perfect for your next brewing or distilling experiment. It strikes a pleasant balance between toasted biscuit-forward flavors and classic rye spice. The second is Light Munich, a long-requested iteration of their popular traditional Munich, which brings some sweet malty complexity and a hint of copper color to your next recipe. Look for it at your local homebrew store and request it if they haven't stocked up yet. Welcome back to the lounge where we're going to lounge around and uh, talk to a couple guys from Grainfather, Sam Loader and Marco Haynes. Uh, the reason we're talking to them is because Grainfather has started implementing a new IBU formula in their recipe software. And I'll just right now, as a little aside that gets pointed out during this, you don't have to use a Grainfather to use their software. It'll work with any kind of system. So if you want to try this out, uh, you can check it out for yourself no matter how you brew. But what they've done is uh, started using a formula called the MIBU formula, or maximum IBUs. comes from a homebrewer up in Portland named John Paul Hosom. And we'll have links to a lot of his papers, too, because there's some very technical stuff there. Uh, did you try reading some of those? I did, and I made it about halfway through before my brain sort of bounced and went. You made it farther than me because for me, calculus was almost 50 years ago, and uh, it, it hurts my head to try and recall all that stuff now. But it, it's very interesting. And as, as I do say in the interview, oh, hey, he's doing integration. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. Um, the good part of it is that you don't have to understand how it works to be able to use it. And, uh, like, like I've said in the interview, I, I feel like maybe my IBUs and my beer are now coming out a little bit closer to what I was expecting them to be. But enough of all that, because you're going to hear us say it all again. So uh, sit back, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving, and check out this interview where we talk to Sam Loader and Marco Haynes from Grainfather about MIBUs. Did you guys ever hear the interview we did with Glenn Tinseth? Yeah, I did. Um, 
he basically said nobody should ever expect to get the same results I did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, yeah, on the uh, MIBU uh, equation, that's kind of where it starts. Um, yeah, exactly. Know, it, it started with the work that Tenzith did, um, you know, to follow on from, you know, the recognition and the Mosher equation for IBU. And um, like with most scientific equations, it's wrong until proven right, and then it's right until proven, <laughs> proven wrong. wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. I love it. Well, and, and that sounds like a perfect good way to lead into the conversation then. Yeah, right. Because yeah. we're, we're used to being wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Well, now that we've got everybody yeah. thoroughly confused, I guess we'll let you know what's going on. Today, Drew and I are talking to Sam Loader and Marco Haynes from uh, Grainfather. And this whole thing kind of came about because I was digging around on the Grainfather website, and they have a whole bunch of really cool technical papers. But one that really got my attention was one about... MIBUs, which you might have gathered uh, from our little discussion there, is about uh, the maximum IBUs in beer. And one of you guys want to just kind of like give a quick rundown on what it is, how it works, and why it's a good thing? Um, just a, just a, what fascinated me about MIBU is um, for a long time, um, playing with these, the, the brewing software, you know, Beersmith, Grandfather, Brewfather, um, that if you're, if you're doing a a boiler edition with, with zero, uh, at zero minutes, then um, the software says you get zero IBUs for that boiler edition. And I think all of us can agree that's uh, it's not the, the common experience. Um, if, you, if you chuck hops in at the end of the boil, you're not going to get zero minutes. Um, and over the over the years, people have attempted to um, to kind of model that and classify it as a hop stand and try to figure out what percentage of um, IBUs you get in your hop stand compared to your boil. Um, and I think IBU, the MIBU method, um, at the core of it, it tries to model post-boil interactions between the temperature, um, the hop, and the wort to try to uh, scientifically try to estimate how many uh, to the beer after the boil. Um, but in um, creating a, an algorithm to account for that, um, we end up up with, with quite a, a more comprehensive way of calculating IBUs. Um, so traditionally, with Tinsith, you would do one calculation for your whole boil, um, whereas with MIBU, we actually run through the whole um, boil time in, in very small increments, like 0.01 of a second. And then for each of those small time increments, we actually uh, adjust the water volume, adjust the gravity, calculate the instantaneous IBU for that that small time period, and then we sum those up right from the start of the boil until uh, end of the boil, until actually you get to the end of your cooling. We try to model the whole temperature changes and volume changes in the work and gravity changes from the start of the boil uh, to the chilling phase and try to model that whole, um, that whole interaction. Yeah, now, I'm about... That's, uh, that's what we're doing. Now I may be about twenty years. Now I may be about twenty years removed from my calculus experiences and classes, but it sounds a lot like you're doing some sort of almost calculus-like idea in order to calculate the IBU edition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of like uh, integration um, mm-hmm. for, for, for bitterness um, over the boil time. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so we are, um, if you think of the IBUs contributed um, to the work from the hops, um, it is a curve, and we're effectively integrating the area underneath that curve to give the mm-hmm. IBU. Right, and I think it's important to, to spell out for people who may not be mathematical nerds. So the tensest equation that we all use, that was sort of a, a regression equation that, that Tensus created to sort of kind of fit his experience, what he saw in his stuff, to the particular curve that he's saw. Okay, well, what's the math that we can do? But it's very discreet. And that's kind of one of the things that we think, that sounds like it's one of the problems that you're trying to solve here is that it turns out that hop additions are not very discreet. So, so I got a question here. Is this mainly to account for late hops? That's that's my understanding of it. Is does it have any effect on say like your sixty minute hops or anything like that? Um, um it does. Um, because we've in, included some of the the new um modifications based on uh, alpha acid solubility and that sort of thing, which um, is included in the MIBU, um, but as well as um, hops that are added later in the boil. Um, if you've got a hop stand or you know whirlpool or anything like that, and yet you've added in hops at 10-minute point, uh, classic tens of the equation would halt that IBU contribution as soon as you get to zero minutes to the boil. But for all of that time that you're above uh, 72 degrees Celsius, and some smart person out there will have to do the conversion to Fahrenheit, um, <clears throat> you are still getting IBU contribution. So in the classic equations, it wouldn't take into account that period of time we are sitting above 72 Celsius during your hop stand or whirlpool, or even in your cooling time um, between throwing in your immersion chiller or cooling and transferring to your fermenter. Um, So that's where this equation as well is starting to come in and add those extra pieces of information. You know, and that kind of like goes with something that Glenn said when we were talking to him, which is that uh, unless your cooling time takes exactly the same amount of time as his does, that uh, that you won't get the same results that he gets. So it sounds like that's something that this definitely works around, huh? Yeah, it definitely gives us more more clarity. Um, kind of as I alluded to before, um, we don't know the complete accuracy of of these. Like most scientific equations, it's just the the model that we see works best. At moment, um, you know, there is uh, empirical information from Firestone, Walker, Sierra Nevada, a few of those ones about um, how much uh, IBU they're they're getting based on their techniques and their brew houses um, for whirlpool and hop stand um, based on the UV vis uh, analysis of their beer, um, but with slight kettle changes, which is another thing that will that the MIBU equation takes uh, into account. Um, you can get different contributions of, of IBUs. So, you know, we've always said that, uh, you know, when you put an IBU, or when you get an IBU estimate from software, 
you're going to be lucky if it's anywhere in the ballpark. And so I, this must be then an attempt to make calculated IBUs line up a lot more closely with actual measured IBUs, huh? Yeah, that's that's correct. And um, the the next frontier will be finding a way to accommodate the uh, portion of hops added that are not um, isomerized alpha acids that contribute to bitterness. Um, there's still that that missing link in the chain, uh, especially as we do more um, really low temperature uh, whirlpool additions and large uh, hop addition, um, dry hop additions that we are doing with the with the haze craze and and these really big um, IPAs and whatnot. So. Are you saying that you do actually get an IBU contribution from dry hops? Yeah, but it's not a it's not necessarily from uh, alpha acids or isomerized alpha acids. Um, polyphenols uh, have been shown to to add uh, bitterness um, oh, yeah. to finished beer, yeah. um, and well, that's something. But I think this. I mean, this goes to that confusion, right? The difference between an IBU which is really just a measure of that isomerized alpha acid versus bitterness as we perceive it, which has IBU components. And then to your point, polyphenols and and other compounds. Yeah. This might be a good point to kind of clarify on that, that, you know, the IBU came from um, UVVIS analysis of acidified beer um, at 275 nanometers, I believe. um, And that, concentration of compounds at that wavelength corresponded well um, with what people perceive as bitterness. Um, (laughs) And very very importantly, what they perceived as bitterness when they were talking about things like lagers and that sort of thing. Yeah, 1960s lagers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, well, I mean, that's why I was really curious about that because Obviously, the the polyphenols in dry hops certainly give an impression of bitterness, uh, whether or not they add IBUs. And, you know, it's going to be real interesting to see how those end up getting quantified. Because, I mean, for me, speaking for my taste, one of the things that I don't like about uh, hazy IPAs, uh, New England IPAs, is the the polyphenolic burn that you get from uh, all the all the dry hops in them. So, you know, if there's some way to quantify what those polyphenols are going to be doing to your taste buds that's very very interesting yeah and it's um this is probably going to come from you know those great scientists over in yakima valley um doing work on the hops that they're harvesting and processing um the the uh, analysis data that we're getting on hops now is so much better than what we were getting even three or four years ago. Um, you know, we've got, you know, alpha acids, beta acids, total oils. We're starting to now get full breakdowns on the linalool, uh, geranium, um, all the other sub-essential um, oils. Uh, it won't be long before um, we figure out, uh, you know, how much are polyphenols and we can do a scientific correlation between the amount of polyphenols in um, that variety of hops and the associated bitterness. Wow. 
<laughs> that would be so cool. That would be a total revelation in the brewing world, uh, you know, and something that people have dreamed about for a long time and always just assumed there was no way that you could actually give it a number. Yeah, and 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 it's um you know it's it's amazing what the way that brewing science has is just making leaps and bounds, uh, like being um with the work in the interview that you guys did with Scott Janish uh Scott Janish um the other the other week and the you know just the spider graph data of adding this hop together and this hop together and you're getting spikes of um tropical fruit versus herbal versus floral and seeing how they overlap to you know Brennan um presenting on files and and beer and and how the biotransformation reactions of those are allowing us to track and and progress um, the yeah the reactions of hop oils with enzymes and the presence of yeast to create new weird and wonderful fruity aromatic compounds. <laughs> Man, that just it, it blows my mind when you think about all the. Uh, all the potential factors that go into influencing this and being able to actually get a handle on what those are as opposed to uh, brewing 84 test batches to f- find out, you know, <laughs> having some idea where you're going to end up is is just stunning. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's uh, standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, we're just all, um, you know, building on the work that, that we've done and... Um, trying to just help everyone get a little bit clearer and make better beer. Now, I, I discovered this concept because uh, I use the, the Grainfather software when I brew on my Grainfather, you know, um, and I, it, it was in there, and so I started using it, and, you know, I, I really do feel like maybe I'm getting a more accurate uh, estimate of what the IBUs are and what I'm doing. Do you know of any other software that is utilizing this formula yet? Uh, no, I actually don't, um, and that's and that's part of the reason why uh, Marco and myself have worked so hard on implementing it. Um, I believe I heard about the work done by John Paul Holsom um, on the MIBU equation. I, I can't remember which which podcast it was from because uh, I try to listen to most of the brewing podcasts out there um, and stumbled across it and really loved the uh, amount of depth, uh, the scientific rigor that was put to this. And um, I shot it straight over to Marco and we both geeked out for uh, a few weeks uh, while we, while we convinced the, the rest of the software team that this was, this is, was a really good thing for us to do. Um, but I, I'm sure that, yeah, um, the addition of this to other softwares will be coming out soon. So Marco, you're a software guy, right? Yeah, that's right. So, how difficult was this to implement in software? Um, so, um, so, so, um, John Paul Hosom, he's done quite a lot of work. He's actually got his own little site where you can um, experiment with the, the MIBU um, formula and just kind of uh, add a, you know two or three hop additions and just kind of hard code your um, the rest of your recipe details like your, your um, batch volume and, and gravity and things like that. So. Um, he did a lot of work in terms of um, creating that algorithm. Um, it was it was a bit of a challenge 
uh, making it fit into our existing um, platform, uh, you know, rather than just a standalone calculator. Um, and, and then actually in the process of, uh, um, of moving that over and implementing it, I found a few um, a few issues with it. So I actually uh, um, to, to improve on that um, ended up uh, kind of better for both of us. It was a bit of a challenge. There's um, a, few, a few things to change. The things was <clears throat> in the original equation, it's assumed that uh, the user or the brewer would, uh, during a hop stand, they would cool their wort to a specific temperature and then uh, maintain that temperature, um, say with the use of a, a heating element or something like that. Um, whereas in, in our experience, or at least with our grandfather brewers, um, the convention is, is rather to let the temperature slowly um, cool uh, while you're doing a hot stand. So and to, um, to kind of uh, create that option for it to let users switch between those two. Um, there's a few other tweaks, but um, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty interesting project. Um, I know <laughs> and Samson it over to me. That's putting it mildly, I'm sure. <laughs> Definitely. When I read through all the... Um, through the article, it was, it was really interesting, and uh, right from the start, I thought, you know, this is this is what we're missing. Or this is what this brewing software world is. It's very um, exciting to come at. Um, so, I think my, one of my favorite parts. I'm um, sorry, I just keep going. Um, especially after reading the, the, <clears throat> the blog article, was the way that um, he presents the graphs. Um, you know, those um, integral time graphs that that helped me visualize going on, what we're trying to model. So instead of just ending up with a number, uh, you know, five or ten or whatever, you actually have a, a, a really good visualization of of what's going on be, behind that number. Like, how did you get to that number? Um, so I, I really like that, and I think that's almost one of my favorite parts of, of the implementation so, on our platform is being able to view those, uh, how each hop edition actually um, affects the contribution. I assume then that you've had the beers analyzed to empirically verify the, the results of this uh, this formula? Uh, we have not. Um, the the author um, has done a lot of tests, um, so we've, we've just gone off, off his um, data. People who want to be able to see that data. Yeah, um, so we can give you guys the, the link to his, um, to his blog articles where he goes into very uh, deep detail. Um, the article that I wrote for the Grandfather um, page is is lighter um, and kind of gives more of a, a softer overview, um, but I uh, cite his, his work in there as well and use the links to take them to specific articles. So if people do want to go through that, we can um, provide the links to, to those articles. Yeah, and I believe it's the uh, what Alchemy Overlord uh, blog site. Yes, that's correct. Or, yep. Yeah, AlchemyOverlord.wordpress.com, and yeah, it, the writing there is pretty dense, but it's it's also still, I mean, I mean, it's scientifically written. It's so it is dense in that nature, but it's very approachable. Yeah. Yeah, well, no, man, I'll let you read it and explain it to me. Well, I think that's part of the point. So now let me ask, you guys have implemented this in the grandfather software, and I know a lot of people will think, okay, well, you know, the grandfather software, I have to have a grandfather, but, I mean, anybody can actually just download the app and use it as recipe form. 
That's correct. We've um, actually added in all types of brewing equipment um, into the software, so you don't have to have uh, grandfather-specific equipment to to use the software. It's also a completely free software, um, which you know you don't really have uh, too many options in that regard these days, um, and. You can also fully add your own custom equipment as well. So we've got a whole lot of pre-selected ones uh, there from all sorts of brands, Blickman, um, uh, Brutals, uh, Bruzilla, um, the Guten products, uh, all of those. Um, but as well, you're fully able to customize your own equipment and therefore um, home-built systems Um it's what I used to do before I had a grandfather was brew my own, three, um, build my own three vessel systems, and uh, then changed over to a grandfather unit. And <laughs> yeah, kind of the rest is history. Being here talking to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. So basically, no matter what kind of system you brew on, you can use the grandfather software and start dealing with MIBs. Exactly, and, and, and we also have um, you, right? to track through your brew day as well to, to take you through your brew day on there um, as well. So recipe development, um, brew day uh, process, and then into fermentation. And Marco and I are working on some stuff around serving and uh, everything like that. So we're, we're always working on new features uh, for the app and and like any piece of software, we're always trying to streamline it and make it better and all that sort of thing. So um, with each, every two-week sprint, um, we're, we're seeing uh, improvements and, and new pieces come out. Well, yes, but how do your retrospectives go? Wait, never mind. Sorry. Agile. <laughs> That's a Marco question. That's not me. <laughs> well, okay, so let me ask. You guys have gone through and... Uh, I mean, you have this this new form of calculation in there, and uh, again, I mean, we'll link to Hobson's material as well, so that you can read that as well as the grandfather article. But now that you have this equation, now that you have these new numbers, do you feel like it's better reflective of what you actually taste? For me, I, I think that it does, um, especially with the way that we're brewing now um, with. Uh, later boil um, hop additions as well as whirlpool additions. I think it's it's much closer. The standard 50 IBU of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale um, with all boil hop additions is is slightly skewed. Um, and now we can have a more representative uh, of that um, in our in our own home brewing. Um, without be, without having the ability to you know send off our samples for lab analysis and you know sitting there and doing 17 20 odd repeats of the same recipe on the same brewing equipment and sending them all off to know yep that's the IBUs that I get and you know being able to um, adjust what our um, alpha acid contribution for each hop um, you know that's that's a thing as well that we need to remember that we have a full library of you know over 200 hops in the in the grandfather app 
But if you're not looking at the packet and confirming, oh, yep, that's the alpha acid that they say on the pack to what's on there and, and making that adjustment, you are you're, you're set, kind of setting yourself up for failure a little bit or at least not tr- as true results as what you could get. Well, never, never doubt the ability for people to sort of gloss over the little details. Oh, we're all lazy brewers in the end, or at least we attempt to be. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, That's yeah, right. I have to agree. Um, I, I think in my beers, I've definitely seen um, the bitterness level a little bit more where I'm expecting it, whereas previously, um, I would say I brew a lot of um, late hop beers and say I'd be aiming for something around 30 um, IBU, um, but then it would, it would always turn out a little bit bitter and a little bit I'm balanced, um, but I think since we introduced this, I've, I've been able to to hit the right balance a lot better with those kind of beers. You know, and I, I don't tend to brew a lot of late hopped beers. I, I've even stopped doing whirlpool editions and stuff like that in favor of dry hopping. But I still feel like uh, when I'm using the MIBUs, I'm tasting a more accurate representation. It's more what I would expect it to be than it was before mm. I was doing that. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah, this is, that's I think a big part of it's also how up until now everyone would just completely ignore what happens after you uh, after you finish a boil and um, like if you're if you're brewing with your grandfather and you're um, transferring the word out with counterflow kind of chiller um, that that word's still sitting there you know like at um, at isomerization temperatures for the whole duration that you're um, transferring the word out um, I think even for Light hop beers, there's a lot of carryover um, bitterness happening after the boil that, that we can actually now take into account. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that is is the case, and uh, my my taste buds <laughs> seem to confirm that too. Drew, anything else we need to get in here? Well, I think it's important that this is another step in the in the move towards the unified beer equation. How to capture all of the beer experience <laughs> in a single number. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, if only Einstein had homebrewed, huh? Yes, if only Einstein had homebrewed, we would have uh, we would be well past the hazy and uh, milkshake IPA phase. <laughs> we can hope. So, you guys, uh, is there anything else you want to get across uh, about MIBUs? So, there's, so there's, there's the the main IBU algorithm um, that we're using um, in this new way of calculating, <clears throat> and then there's a few uh, extra options that, um, that that kind of just uh, optimize it in different ways. So, so one of them is called um, alpha acid solubility limit correction, bit of a mouthful. Um, if you're in the grandfather software, if you go into preferences um, and you've got your MIBU um, business formula selected, you have some extra options that you can configure. So one of them, um, this alpha acid solubility limit correction, it's enabled by default. And um, basically the theory of that is that um, you can keep adding more hops up until the point uh, and get to a point where there's so much, um, like, uh, there's so much uh, alpha acids already dissolved that um, you know you've reached your solubility limit. So, um, as part of this equation, um, the authors built in this way to uh, uh, try to account for that. And then, so it's quite a, you, get, you get the scenario that's quite interesting, where um, say you add um, we're talking grams for a minute, but say you're adding 200 grams. To your um, to your boil, um, there's a point where you know adding more adding more grams, it's going to add. Well, according to our equation, it's going to add zero uh, IBUs if you then add another um, 
later hop edition. And I think this trips up a few people, but um, that comes down to the, the code we've got in there to, to kind of like limit the maximum uh, IBUs that will display for a recipe. So it's not always what people expect. I think if you have recipes where you've got really high IBUs, like over 100, um, if you then put the to our, um, into our platform, you might get lower numbers, but that's because of this option we have to to account for that uh, solubility limit. Yeah, which we've seen seen that in the past um, with the old calculations. You know, you would you would throw these uh, bears in there, and you would have you know two hundred IBUs of of calculated. Uh, you know, of calculated IBUs, but then when they got those measured uh, empirically through the labs, they were actually about 100 or so, don't quote me on those numbers, but just as a, as a reference. Um, and, and that's where the solubility limit comes in. It's like adding, you know, sugar, to, sugar or salt to water. You can only add a certain amount before the salt just doesn't dissolve in the water and all sinks to the bottom. Um, so there's some yeah research done around that to to just help um, give you more more valid numbers. Yeah, and I think with the core calculation prov providing higher uh, IBUs than you might expect, it, it works quite well um, together with that to limit like the, the the higher numbers when you get too too high. So that I think it's quite important to to have those working together. Otherwise, you might see um, pretty high numbers where you where they wouldn't expect them. So, in other words, there is a certain amount of, of that after a certain point in time, you just can't cram any more hop to the beast. Exactly. <laughs> well, wow. There's going to be a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, well, you're just, you're just soaking up your beer at that point. <laughs> well, and, that, and that's part of the reason why I've always, whenever you see people talk, oh yeah, no, I, I used, I used three pounds of hops in this five gallon batch or twenty liter batch, right? Um, I always look at that and go. Why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why waste all that citra? Because it's the American way. More is better. <laughs> no, no, it gets even it gets even worse if you when you have the people who are like, I used you know X Y Z amount where X Y Z is a very large amount and it's like, yeah, citra mosaic and galaxy and you're like, okay, well you just decrease the global supply of those. <laughs> <laughs> Really? Okay, well, let's wrap things up here. We have been talking to Sam Loader and Mirko Haynes from uh, Grainfather about the MIBU concept. It's implemented in the Grainfather app, and uh, just because you don't have a Grainfather, although maybe you should, you can still use the app to uh, play around and learn about MIBUs and see if it is a more accurate representation uh, for all you guys out there when you brew. Guys, thank you so much for getting up early on a Saturday morning to join us yeah, here. Yeah, no problem, guys. Um, yeah, and for those out there listening, if, if people have any questions uh, about the software and stuff, um, you can contact us through the um, Grandfather Help. Um, we are both the, the sort of the final stop there, and if has any questions on MIBU or anything else around the software, we're always happy to answer those questions for people. Um, but it's been great being on here, uh, Denny and Drew. Always always nice to have a conversation. <laughs> yeah, man, you know what? And maybe it's not going to be a whole heck of a long time before we can all get together again. Yeah, here's hoping. Uh, we'll, uh, 
hopefully uh, be up there for um, HomebrewCon this year and might have to find a way to, to make some pies over in the States for you. Yay, pies. <laughs> oh, man. man. I, uh, I learned to make pies after I was down there. Uh, a couple of the guys uh, from Nelson, Carl Summerfield especially, uh, came up here to visit and uh, showed me how to make pies. So uh, maybe what we need is like a pie contest. Yours against oh, mine. Yeah. I'll be the judge. <laughs> it's on. <laughs> I, have, I have no illusions about who would win that contest. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you once again. Uh, it's great to talk to you, and I hope we can see you before too long. Yeah, likewise. Please. All right. Yeah. Bye-bye. So, uh, what do you think? What's your reaction? Drew, very dumb. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> I can I can relate, man. You're not the only one. No, actually, what I think is interesting is I I I, I want to dig in more. I want to play play with it more because I'm really really curious because I think it's heading in the right direction, right? So people forget, or uh, hopefully listeners of the show don't forget that, of course. Glenn Tensis with the Humber, who developed the iView formula that most of us use. And so now what we're seeing here from Mr. Hosom is another sort of development that is, again, trying to shift how we think of those numbers to reflect how hops are being used these days. And again, to pull it back to the beer I was talking about earlier, the uh, worth exploring, uh, Andrew Bell over there at Radiant Beer, every time I would ask him about IVUs, demurred away from trying to deliver an IVU number. Because he didn't feel like it was reflective of what he was trying to aim for in the in the beers themselves, and I think I think this is a big problem right now with like all of these hop forward IPAs. Like, how do we actually figure out what are we seeing? What are we actually tasting? How do we quantify that in a way that we can all understand it and understand that when we look at this number, oh, that's what I'm going to get, or at least ish. Right. So I'll be curious. I think I think one of the things that we need to do is we is we need to bring bring him on and see if he can't teach two blockheads like us more about his formula. Yeah, you know, and to me, one of the interesting things about it, and something that's always uh, concerned me, I guess, is the fact that you, if you really load up on late hops, you get apparent bitterness from all the polyphenols in the hops without really adding to the IBUs. So besides figuring out the IBUs from late hop additions, this is also working towards trying to figure out what kind of bitterness uh, contribution you get from from the polyphenols in, in your late hops. If you're going to put like 48 pounds of, uh, of dry hops into your uh, New England IPA, it's going to have an effect, and this is a way to kind of quantify that and give you some idea of what kind of effect it's going to have. So, I mean, I know that Marco and Sam said that they're going to be working a lot more with it at Grainfather. I expect that uh, we're going to be seeing a lot more of this coming up. I've heard from uh, other people who make brewing software that they're going to be implementing this formula. But I would really encourage all of you who are ready for a little bit of geekery to follow some of the links on our website to uh, Hosom's original articles. Go to the Grainfather website and check out some of the articles they've done there. And just follow the developments, because like Drew said, I think that over the next few years, this is going to get very interesting. Yes, it will. All right. And then now, of course, it's going to be time for us to get into closing this show up and getting you on your way. So first, 
a message from our sponsors. Why Yeast is redefining wintry mix this quarter, so we invite you to toast these new exclusive releases as we head into the new year. An original from our early days, 1087 Why Yeast Bohemian Ale Blend is being released for the first time ever to homebrewers. Look forward to the qualities of this versatile blend in your next British or American style ales. 1882 Thames Valley Ale 2 returns for its crisp, dry, and malty profile and the ability to produce bright bitters and dark ale styles. And if you're seeking a cold-savvy yeast for winter brewing, 2105 Rocky Mountain Lager is ideal for North American and light lagers. These Y-East Originals are released now through the end of March and are available for a limited time at your local homebrew shop. Find out more at yeastlab.com. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back. It's time to wrap things up and get on the way. And we're going to start off with a question. And before I read this, let me just remind you all that we only have a couple more episodes left until number 132, which is an all Q&A show. So we need your questions. Send them in to podcast at experimentalbrew.com or give us a call at 626-765-1253 and uh, leave us a voicemail or uh, shoot us a text or whatever you want to do. Ask your questions. We'll try to answer questions about anything, right? Anything and everything. Anything and everything. Our one question of the week comes from Matt Burns in Washington, and he wrote in to say, after listening to episode 126 of the Myth Amino, the replay episode that we did with Amino, uh, I whipped up a two and a half gallon batch of a semi-sweet mead made with local fireweed honey. And I like fireweed. Fireweed is fun. Uh, The stats of the recipe are down below, and I'll read those when I get there. The yeast was rehydrated with GoFirm Protect, pitched into the must, and aerated with an aquarium pump for about 25 minutes, which makes some sense with using just standard air oxygen and a pump. After doing some research into finding agents, I decided to use bentonite added at the beginning of primary fermentation. I used the Tonsa calculator at meadmayright.com to determine the Tonsa schedule. Uh, if you don't know, uh, Tonsa, uh, the Tonsa schedule is the sort of staggered nutrient additions. Uh, schedule. It's a more complicated version of what we've learned from uh, SRAM and company. Uh, 
Inspired by Mino, I'm using a six-gallon PET carboy that I can easily shake for about five minutes twice a day to degas, since, as Mino said, CO2 is the enemy. The carboy has lots of room to splash the meat around, and it's kind of fun to watch it foam up as it's shaken. My wife thinks it's funny when I tell her I have to go shake my mead. I can't imagine why. I added the fourth dose of nutrients on day seven, when the gravity was 22.9 degrees Plato, 1096 specific gravity. The one-third sugar break finally came on day 12, which is today. When I tasted this morning, yes, there is nothing like starting the day with a few sips of mead. It tasted just like the honey, lightly floral and sweet, with no hot alcohol or other off flavors, including no taste of the nutrients. Just the same, I had another dose of Fermade O. Again, I used Mino as inspiration, thinking the seemingly slow fermentation might be aided by feeding the yeast. So that leads to my question. Is this apparently slow fermentation common with strong meads? This is my third batch of mead, and the others fermented much more quickly, probably too quickly, and they are not as drinkable as I wished. In one case, six months later, and in the other, about four years later. And so in his two-and-a-half-gallon batch, he was using eight pounds of uh, fireweed honey. And just give me a second here. 16 16 pounds in a five-gallon batch. So yeah, that puts it in about semi-sweet range. I, I tend to think 12 is uh, 12 pounds in a five-gallon batch, like 12 to 13 is a dry, uh, 14, uh, 14 to 16 is going to be semi-sweet, and then anything like above 18 is like sack strength sweet, right? He's saying, okay, so he's got his one-third sugar break on day 12. So I'm guessing if he's saying one-third sugar break, hmm, is this that slow? And that's the thing. Everything, Matt, that you've described in here that you're doing is stuff that I would absolutely do myself. Yeah. Uh, except for the one thing is doing bentonite at the beginning of the primary. That's the one thing I've never done before. I usually wait until I'm done with the fermentation, do the bentonite, do the clearing. So I mean, you sound like you have good fermentation. I'm wondering, so the yeast went in with the go, go firm protect. And unlike uh, beer yeast, when we talk about wine yeast, it does actually help to do the rehydration and do, do it with uh, GoFirm uh, as a nutrient. Um, so rehydrated, pitched in the must, and aerated with an aquarium pump. And then using bentonite at the beginning of primary. Okay, see, that's that's the one that's weird to me because that one I've never I, – I haven't seen that before. I haven't heard people talking about that before. And it goes against the things that I was taught. Now, however, I'm just going to say – Going against the things I've taught does not mean that you are necessarily wrong. <laughs> it means I could have been taught wrong. Um, but that's the one thing that is here in your process that I don't do. Because if you're only, like, when you say a third sugar break, I'm assuming that means you've fermented a third of your sugar after 12 days. I mean, that does feel slower than I'd expect. Yes, a stronger meat is going to ferment slower, but I would still expect it to be faster than this. Um, so that is interesting, because yeah, uh, original gravity of eleven nineteen, and fermenting at sixty six degrees, and anticipated final gravity at at ten twelve sg. That's uh that's going to be low, um. But yeah, I I'm I'm curious about the bentonite stuff. That's that's the one thing I haven't done before, uh, and I'm wondering if maybe you didn't knock some of your yeast out of the solution. You know, I know I know nothing about mead, but I would say that that is a decent guess at least. 
Yeah. So, listeners, has anybody else done uh, bentonite at the beginning of primary fermentation? I'd be curious. I'm going to do some more reading because I don't recall ever seeing that in any of the mead books I've done. Uh, but this could be new processes, and, and I make mead, but I don't make a ton of it. So, and I kind of just have a, a tried and true formulation for what I do. So, although good on you for using the Tonsa calculator, I do like that uh, calculator. It does make the the staggered nutrient addition idea a lot easier. Um, at least I should say a lot easier in terms of getting it right, because you did make a very good point that uh, if you overdo the yeast nutrient, which a lot of homebrewers can do, it definitely gives a taste to the mead. So that's part of the reason to use the Tonsa calculator. And again, that's at Mead Made Right. Yeah, listeners, any of you all done bentonite at the beginning of primary fermentation? Because I haven't, and I need to do some more research on that. But Matt, that's the one thing that jumps out at me uh, as being different from my process and would make me wonder. So also, by the way, strong mead, it's okay if it takes a month. It's going to take some time. Yeah, I mean, it probably doesn't take five years like everybody used to think about mead, huh? Well, no, that's because everybody used to, I mean, people used to use raisins as their yeast source and and nutrient source, and then they were using darker, danker honeys that take time to age out. Yeah, I mean, these days, I remember one of the years up in the upper Midwest when we had the conference there, and Kurt Stock and company had a mead panel, and they were serving all these really wonderful meads, and I don't think there was a single mead there that was older than, like, five months. Yeah, I I remember he served one, and I thought, my God, this may be the best meat I've ever had in my life, and it was two months old. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, again, that's part of the reason to pay attention to things like the Tonsa process. But, yeah, the bentonite one is the one that throws me. So (laughs) we'll we'll do some more research. Listeners, you tell me your experiences, and and Matt, we will get you a better answer, okay? Uh, At least uh, you will, because I have no idea. It's time to move on for our quick tip for the day. And this is uh, one that comes from the Captain Obvious Files. But, uh, you know, it's getting to be summer. So it's about time to start thinking about what kind of beers you want to have around for the summer. Uh, for me, it's always something like German pills. For somebody else, it might be a blonde ale. Uh, cream ale. <laughs> cream ale is a good one also. And, you know, good old IPA is always a year-rounder, and, and it's a nice refreshing beer in the summer. If you don't make it too strong or thick and uh, you give it a nice blast of hot bitterness to uh, cut through the, the heat and sultriness. Sultriness, is that a word? Sultricity? Sweltering? The swelteriness? Uh, yeah, okay. Any of those things. <laughs> so anyway, the, the real idea here is start thinking about what you want to be drinking this summer and start getting a brood. Because especially if you're going to be making a lager or something like that, it may take a bit of time. So, uh, you know, we're already here into April. Get your summer beers going right now. Yeah, my advice is... Picture that outdoor barbecue that you've been wanting to have for this whole past year. What is it that you want to drink at that barbecue? Picture it in your hand. Picture the taste of it. Go make that beer. That's right. Good advice. And now something other. Right. And I guess we each have one today. Mine is a podcast called The Plot Thickens that comes from TCM, Turner Classic Movies. Ben Mankiewicz, who's a host there, in case you haven't watched TCM, and is just steeped in Hollywood movie history between his father and grandfather being seminal figures, sits down. Oh, is he that Mank? Yeah. 
<laughs> you didn't know that, huh? I, I just never thought about it. I should have. Yeah, yeah. The, the guy, uh, Mank, in uh, in the Netflix uh, movie, is his uncle. So there you go. Um, he sits down and talks to Peter Bogdanovich, another seminal Hollywood figure who has uh, written some incredible books and directed some of the best movies that have come out of Hollywood. Uh, What's Up, Doc? Being one of my personal favorites. Uh, Bogdanovich was a good friend of Orson Welles. He has been in Hollywood for a long time and has a bunch of super fascinating stories about how he got there, about the people he's met and worked with. Uh, if you are into movies at all in any fashion, this is a podcast that you really want to sit down and listen to. Uh, my wife and I listen to it when we're driving someplace and always end up looking at each other going, oh my God. God, I had no idea. So check it out. It's it's fascinating. It's interesting. And I think you're going to like it. And mine is actually a short story. You guys remember short stories? I love short stories. Um, and it's from the author uh, Alex Harrow, or Alex E. Harrow. And um, she wrote a story that is really, it's kind of a, a witchy rift on the Ransom of the Red Chief by O. Henry. Uh, it's called uh, The Ransom of Miss Coraline Connolly. And the whole story is a, it's an epistolary story, uh, from this dark evil queen who has kidnapped a toddler, writing to her mom, demanding, you know, the, the ransom necessary to have her child return to her, which starts off as nine years of, of her life, uh, to give to this queen, uh, Queen Jareth the Third, the Empress of the Black Realms. And the whole story, if you, if you remember the, um, the O'Henry story, then you'll know where this is going. But it's actually, it's a very lovely story uh, from last July. And it doesn't actually, it, it's a nice quick read because, of course, epistolaries read ten, uh, or tend to read very fast. And uh, Alex E. Haro is an up-and-coming writer who just got a lot of attention for a book called The 10,000 Doors of January. So I enjoy her writing style. Go check it out. We'll include the link in there. It'll be a nice, quiet, contemplative 10 minutes. There you go. Ten minutes is always a good length for quiet contemplation. Absolutely. All right. Out of here. All right. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out a lot on the uh, homebrewing subreddit and also the Slack homebrewing channel. You can find me on any number of beer forums around, usually the AHA discussion forum or maybe the beer garden. And I spend a lot of time, too much time on Facebook talking about beer. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or even just rant and rave at us, you can always email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget to send in those questions for our upcoming all Q&A episode. And if you want to reach each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can always give us a call, send us a text, leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1-ALE. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.